Hey, good morning, church. Uh, let me invite you to stand for the reading of the word this morning. I know you've stood some this morning. If you're at home, if you're able to stand, great. If not, I just want you to posture, like put yourself in a place where you can receive the word. We're going to work through 11 verses today, but I wanted us to stand on the promises and the truth in the, these 11 verses before we work through them. Further, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and again. It is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by a spirit who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless or blameless. But, ever, what would, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And for the word of God, the whole church said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And let me work through three things real quick before we get to uh, back to these 11 verses. My wife and I got away for a little over a week, Casey and I did, to celebrate our uh, 20th anniversary, which happened back in May, just when you chase kids around for a few months. We weren't able to get away until last week. Um, we, we have a commitment in our family, in our marriage, that we get away once a year with no kids. It's a commitment we have honored for 15 years. We know this, I know this, that I could preach to this church another 15 years or maybe another 30 years, yet if my marriage isn't being cultivated, something isn't right. So I'm grateful for this church and the love and support you give to me and my family. Uh, it matters to us. Casey and I want our boys to know we get away every year to cultivate our marriage because we're raising you to get up out of this house and go thrive in the world, but we are together forever. And we also know that Satan is coming after marriages with everything he has, and Satan's coming after marriages of leaders. So Casey and I had a wonderful week. I'm grateful for Mark Powell and Lance Holly and the wonderful jobs they did preaching the last couple of weeks. The other thing I want to give just a little voice to is October is Clergy Appreciation Month or Pastor Appreciation Month. And uh, I know there are some churches throughout the world that elevate ministers and put them on pedestals God never intended them to be on. And I know there are churches that sometimes treat ministers as hired hand, like they can just come and go. I'm grateful to be working in a church where the elders trust the ministers to help lead and to think and to be creative uh, and, and to be a part of helping to cast vision and create vision, I am grateful for the six full-time ministers I get to work with. I think Kip is now, this month, has celebrated 19 years of ministry here. Jim Hinkle is completing year 17. Justin Ardry is on year 11. Anna is on year 7. And Tyler and Annika are only on month 2, but you got to start somewhere, right? 
And I am grateful for the work environment where there is joy and camaraderie and love and fun. Uh, so uh, are the other five ministers, I know Anna's in children's uh, worship, will you stand where you are if the other five are in here? And can we just thank them, thank them for all God is doing in them. Yeah. All right, y'all can be seated, y'all can be seated. And I know Jim already touched on this, and Jeremy Upton just prayed over Panama, but next week is our 316 offering. The link is already open, and I know some of you have already given, and if you've already chosen what you want to give, you can do that before next Sunday. I just want to encourage this as a church this week, and especially those of you with families, take a little time this week, not just to think about the money you want to give, but, but spend time in prayer over our missionaries, and next Sunday we'll come together, and we'll have a special offering, we'll have a prayer time over them and so grateful for the partnerships we have around the world. Now, let me ask this question. When it comes to an autobiography, what is it that makes an autobiography good and compelling? Autobiographies are stories about people's lives and usually what makes them good and compelling is that there are stories and there are memories and maybe specific dates. And I think what makes an autobiography really compelling is that there are challenges in life that people have had to overcome. All of you could write an autobiography. Now, people, a, lot of, a lot of people may not read it, but you could write it. Like there are things that have happened in your life, specific dates and memories and things that have formed you and challenges that you've had to overcome in your life. So you could Google like the top, like the best-selling autobiographies of all time, and a number of the people aren't alive anymore, but some of them are. Tina Fey wrote a book a few years ago called Balsy Pants, and I'm just using her as an example, that in her book, there are compelling stories that she tells, and you could read her book, and you could learn a lot about Tina Fey's, her family background, and, and hobbies that she had, and challenges she had to overcome, and what it was like to be a woman in a, in a, in a world of comedy, which was kind of a male-dominated world when she was breaking in and you could read it and you could think that you could come away with that knowing a lot about Tina Fey. Yet if anyone in this room, I'm assuming anyone in this room, tried to reach out to her to have breakfast or lunch or coffee or a glass of wine or just to hang out, most of us aren't going to have one-on-one -on -one time with Tina. So we think we may know who she is, but we will never actually get to know her on a personal basis. Yeah, you can read somewhat of an autobiography or biography about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you can know a lot about him. You know about his birth, you know about challenges they had to overcome in his family. You can know a lot about his life and about relationships that he had, and of course about death, burial, resurrection, about a church that he launched that still has legs 2,000 years later. And not only do you know about him, but you can know him. It's not just knowing things about him, but you can know him. And what makes Jesus so remarkable isn't just that you can know him, but that he wants to be known. Like 2,000 years later, like Jesus wants to be known. So what I want for you today is we work through 11 verses. For those of you who are new to the faith, or maybe you're here today and you're in this space and you're just giving Christianity a shot, is that you consider what, what Philippians 3 verse 10 can mean for your life. I want to know Christ. And if that became an anthem for you, what step do you need to take in your life for that to become an anthem? And for those of you who've been walking in faith for decades, what does it mean for you to continue to live in a way where this is an anthem for your life? I want to know Christ. Not just about Christ, but I want to know Christ. So let's go all the way back to verse 1, which begins with the word finally, or uh, in some of your versions, it may just have like further. It's a transitional word. 
So it's finally rejoice in the Lord, which is a phrase that Paul says over a half dozen times in Philippians. Now, Paul may say rejoice and over and over again in Philippians because he is affirming something that's happening in the church. Maybe they're a church in which their culture is. They are a joy-filled culture. Like they know how to rejoice. Or it could be Paul like challenging them. Like, hey, you have neglected what it means to be people full of joy. Like rejoicing in the Lord is something that you have forgotten. Either way, whether Paul is affirming that this is something that they're really good at and this is who they are, or if it's a challenge, either way, it is a reminder. You need to rejoice in the Lord. It's a reminder. I do this to my kids every week. Every morning when we wake up, and a lot of times I take one or both of them to school, every morning I wake them up with a song. I make up songs every morning. They love it. It's the best part of the day for them. The song I created about pressing through the Monday wall, it's, it's epic. You're going to hear it one day, all right? They hate the songs I have for them in the morning. But after that, as I'm taking them to school, I remind them of a few things. I remind them of the same things every day. Look out, watch like who is the lonely person that needs you to at least just say hi to them. I try to encourage them, be a good student, be respectful to adults, be a good friend. And I say the same things every day. And part of it is I'm saying that affirming things that God is already doing in them. And I'm also saying it to challenge them, don't forget to do these things. So Paul says, finally rejoice in the Lord. And the second part of verse 1, it's like Paul's like, I don't mind telling you this over and over again. Like, you may get tired of me saying this, but I don't get tired of writing it. I don't get tired of telling you this over and over again. Because, and here's the word Paul uses, it is a safeguard for you. And this Greek word safeguard, this is about stability. It's about balance. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 that talks about an anchor for the soul. This is the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19. Paul is saying, I want stability for you. Like I keep saying this over and over again because I want you to have good balance in life. Now here's the bad news. Around the age of 35, balance begins to decline. And some of us will suffer from balance deficit. And balance is so important. It's the foundation of movement for us. So you have this vestibular system. And, and here's kind of how it goes, all right? The inner ear has three semicircular canals in which there is fluid and sensors that help the brain that detect movement in the head. So as your head moves, you have the hair in the semicircular canals that sends nerve impulses to the brain. And those nerve impulses help the brain process where you are in space and if there is moving, like if you were moving. So here's what it means for me standing up in front of you today. Words are coming out of my mouth, yet I'm moving left and right on this stage and I move my arms and I try to look to the left and I try to look in the camera and I try to look to the right and all of this, something's happening like in my brain helping me know where I am in space so I don't go tumbling down the stairs or bump into my round table. Have you ever gotten off of a boat or a cruise ship and it's hard for you to find your balance? Or you played the game where you put your forehead on the bat and you spin around 10 times and try to run in a straight line. Like things in your brain, these, these wires, these nerve impulses, everything's not working correctly. How many, of you, how many of you struggle from vertigo? Just a show of hands. Like you know what it's like just to be off a little bit. 
So there are things that we're encouraged to do throughout our lives, like take balance assessment tests and meet with people who can help us assess our balance. And then we're encouraged later on in life to focus on ankle strength and core strength and hip flexibility that can help us with balance. And exercise can be really good. As long as we don't exercise like this one person, okay? Look, last week, Casey and I were on our trip, and every morning, Casey, like, took off running to the beach, and I would go to the gym, and then I would meet up with Casey. I went to the fitness gym one morning, and I had to take a picture of this. Because when you went in, you had to sign in. You had to sign in your name, your room number, the time in, and then you had to put the time out. And I noticed this, and I had to take a picture, because this person in front of me went into the gym at 829, and left the gym at 8.29, and wrote it down on a piece of paper. And it left me with a lot of questions. I, really, I was really curious about this. I sent it to a few friends. They were like, their room number's there. Go, go ask her what happened. So I did. Actually, I didn't, all right? That would, that would be... But I was just curious what happened. Like, like if, if it is a person who's in really good shape, like, I want to know what kind of workout they did in 45 seconds, because wouldn't we all love a 45-second workout that gets us in good shape? Or did she walk in and sign in thinking she was in a spa or somewhere else and then sign out and leave? Look, when it comes to our lives, there's balance. And there are things we have to do to help balance stay in place, to help balance be strengthened. Paul is concerned about balance and stability in people's lives. And for Paul, what he says in verse 1, I want good balance for you. And for there to be good balance, you need to be practicing in your life what it means to rejoice in the Lord. That's where balance comes from. Not just to rejoice in life and not to rejoice in family and not to rejoice in circumstances, but for you to practice and learn in your life what it means to rejoice in the Lord. So as Paul makes this statement, because he's transitioning into a new section in the letter, he makes a statement, lets them know that this is a safeguard for you. This is balance for you because there are a lot of things working in the life of that church to knock them off balance. So in verse 2, he offers up a beware. And some of your versions, there's only one beware. There are three in the Greek. So these are strong statements Paul's making. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, and beware of those who mutilate the flesh. This isn't just beware of those who are insisting on circumcision. This was the pagan way of saying circumcision. This is like mutilators. So he offers up three bewares. Now, there are times when Paul and even Jesus will offer up warnings in which it seems to be name-calling. And I know we're in a culture now where it seems like people in all levels of life will name-call and there's bullying. For Paul, this is not a moment in which he is dehumanizing people. But he is making strong warnings to the church. He's, he's warning them about some challenges that are disrupting unity. And to do this, he says, beware. Now, there is a chance that the people he's warning the church about are actually in the church. Wouldn't that be wild? If everybody was sitting there and the letter's being read for the first time, and it's beware of the dogs, and people are like, do we know that's Ralph? Like, it's right over there. Beware of the evil workers. It's like, that's Susie, but don't look at Susie. Beware of... Those who mutilate the flesh, like people would know like who they were. Paul's making a warning. Like there are those who are trying to knock off your balance. And then in verse 3 and 4, 
What Paul does is he wants people to know what true circumcision is. So he talks about boasting in Christ. Now, let me break down how boasting works in the New Testament because there are times where boasting is negative and there are times when boasting is positive. Especially with Paul, when boasting is about human achievement or boasting is about the flesh, it's negative. When boasting is about Christ, it's positive. So when it's about boasting about what Christ has done in your life or the work of Christ, this is, really po- this is a very positive thing. So Paul wants them to know that throughout the church, there are times when even then people were insisting on Christ and Moses or Christ and circumcision or Christ and angels or Christ and anything. And today this can happen too, like Christ and theological uh, or Christ and denominational practices or Christ and and, uh, worship service formulas, like Christ and, and. And Paul wants to warn people there can never be Christ in anything. Because when it comes to your heart being connected to God, the flesh, this is like Paul's rated G or rated PG way of saying, flesh is not what connects you to God. Like human achievement doesn't connect you to God. Which especially for Gentile adults and Gentile male adults, this was a major sigh of relief. I don't know if you ever saw this pop up on social media about a week ago or about a year ago, but the, the Galatian who was circumcised the day before Paul's new letter arrived. Like, you know, wouldn't you hate to be that, that person, right? So then Paul says, okay, look, apparently in the church there are people who are like lifting up their human achievements and maybe they were doing it in a way of, look, you need to know what family I'm a part of or the things I've accomplished because then you'll listen theologically to what it is I have to say to you or what I'm trying to teach you. People are like using their human achievement to jockey for position. And Paul's like, okay, look, if you want to play the game, which I don't think is a great game to play, if you want to play it, I'll play it too. Flip a coin, you go first and then I'll go. So Paul lists seven of his accomplishments. The first four he didn't choose. They were chosen for him. So Paul begins listing things like, hey, you want to play the game of human achievement? Let's go. Circumcise on the eighth day. Eight-day-old infants don't make decisions to be circumcised. It's chosen for them. Circumcise on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin, which was the tribe that sat at the right hand of the throne. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul is letting people know that when it comes to family lineage, hundreds of years I go back as part of a family that has devoted themselves to the ways of God. The last three are choices Paul made in his life. As to the law of Pharisee, which was a, could be a really positive thing. Like Pharisees were people who devoted themselves to the way of God. Sometimes we think Pharisee, we think negative. But Pharisees were people who were devoted to righteousness. As for zeal and passion, persecuting the church, like Paul was super passionate about how he was trying to live out his faith. And as to righteousness, blameless or faultless. Not sinless, but faultless, blameless. Like pursuing the ways of God. So Paul's like, you want to play the game, I'll play the game with you. And he lists these achievements that would have been super impressive. And then Paul gets to verse 7. And I want to set up verse 7 through 11 like this. If you were new to the faith, maybe this is the first day in a while, you're like giving Christianity a shot again, or maybe you've never surrendered a life to Christ. I hope that verse 7 through 11 can become a window for you of what faith could mean for you for the rest of your life. And for those of you who have practiced faith, you've been a part of faith for decades, I hope that 7 
through 11 will never cease to be an anthem for your life. This is one of the most profound statements about the work of Christ in someone's life that you will read in the entire Bible. Not just in Paul, in the entire Bible. And what Paul does in these five verses is just talk about the work of Christ and how it has given him perspective to think about everything. And to do it, he uses accounting language. He uses language of losses and gains. Like, hey, there are these things, your assets that are on one side, and because of Jesus, they've been transferred to a side of losses. So he talks about losses and gains three different times. That all my gains... I regard as loss. And then he says, even more than that, I regard everything as loss so I can gain the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And then he says, I suffered the loss of all things in order to gain Christ. Paul doesn't say that Judaism is worthless. What he's trying to say is, in life, Christ is better. Name something in your life. Christ is better than that. Paul's not saying that your human achievement and and the promotions you've had in your life and things you've accomplished, that they're worthless. It's not that they're worthless. It's that when you think of them, always know Christ is better than that. Christ is what will sustain you for eternity, not your accomplishments or your achievements or even your family or the things you love that are around you. So have the perspective in life that no matter what I surround myself with or what I do in life, Christ is better. Now, I know that sometimes in life, you don't choose losses. Losses choose you. I've talked before how sometimes losses can seem to stack in life. Man, this can throw us off. And I think this is a case where Paul's saying, okay, for those who want to live deeper into what it means to be a mature follower of Jesus, you choose losses for the sake of knowing Christ. Jared Hawthorne says it like this. No person profits who does not surrender to Christ, and no person loses who surrenders everything for Christ. And then Paul says this in Philippians 3, verses 10 through 11. That's how he closes out this. I want to know Christ. Which I want that to be an anthem in your life. I want to know Christ. Not just about Christ. I want to know Christ. The power of his resurrection. And wouldn't we all love that? that's where it stops, right? I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, period. But instead, it's I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. Participating with him in his suffering. Becoming like him in his death. If so, somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. He starts with resurrection, goes to death, and back to resurrection. There's a woman named Nina She wrote a compelling story a few years ago. She was a chaplain in a children's hospital. And in her story, she talked about the power of Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11 in her life. As a chaplain in a children's hospital, she would spend her days going in and out of rooms with children who were sick and interacting and praying over them and then working with moms and dads and family members and friends And then she would go home at night, and when she would go home, she would wrestle with these big questions of just, like, where is God when children are suffering? Like, for her, it was, 
you know, it was okay that they're suffering in the world. They're not okay, but she could like wrap her mind around that. But when the innocent suffer, like she was struggling with that. And she was okay during the day. She was okay going in and out of rooms where she's ministering to people and talking about hope in God and praying over people. But when she would go home and sit on her couch at night, these questions would mess with her. And there was one night she was sitting on her couch, had a fire going, she had a book out, she's reading her book, but in the back of her mind, in her mind, were these questions about where is God while all these children are suffering? Like, what is God doing? And in that moment, the phone rang. And it was a mother who had a daughter who had been sick and had been in and out of that hospital for a long time. And this mother said, they're in the emergency room her daughter was really sick, and she wanted Nina to be there. And Nina didn't want to go. She had done this before, and there had been like false alarms. This same mother had told her before, like, hey, it's an emergency. You've got to come down here. And she would go down there, and it was a false alarm. But something was telling her this day, you need to go. So she got dressed, walked through the snow all the way to the hospital. Come to find out, it was a false alarm. The daughter was going to be okay. Yet she sat down with the mother, and they started just to talk about life and suffering and faith. And something in that moment, something in that conversation clicked. And for the first time, even though she had read and thought about what it means to join Christ in the power of his resurrection and participate with him in suffering, it clicked. So she went on to write an article about it, about joy. And what she wrote was this. She said, I had read about God and Jesus Christ participating in the human experience, participating in suffering, knowing rejection, knowing aloneness and pain and fear, knowing anger, even anger at God. I had read it, but it had never been a revelation until now. And that's the most significant point of her story, that she had received this revelation by following her conscience and doing what she determined to be to be her duty. So she went on to write this. Reading about these problems in the world is vital, but alone it is not enough. Meditation on written words is good, but alone it is not enough. Do when you don't want to do. Go when you don't want to go. Plod through the snow. Wrestle with the cold and wind. Go when you don't want to go. And when you least expect, you may glimpse through an open door a revelation. When it comes to what Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to participate with him in his suffering and becoming like him in his death, we experience this as a church every time you see people go to others to pray. We experience it every time you see people come to an elder to my right, and not only do they come to them, within a moment, people in the church surround them. Because in this church, we don't pray alone. We see this lived out every time we feed the homeless every other Wednesday night or have grocery giveaways. Every time you are aware of someone in your life or in this church who is suffering or hurting, and you don't just pray for them, but you let them know you're praying for them. You come alongside of them to help them. We live this out every time we are intentional about what it means to be a good neighbor and to value our coworkers. It's what it means to live as people who are always reflecting on the power of the resurrection and what it means to participate with Christ in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, so that the world may know. So we come to a table this morning, the bread and the cup, 
And here's what I want to encourage you to reflect on this morning. And for the elders in the room who are going to receive people, will you do that? Laura, are you here? Do you mind going to the left? I didn't ask you, but if you'll, just to receive people this morning. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. In the bread and cup, Jesus wants to be known. Not just for you to know about him, but for there to be revelation, for eyes to be open to know him. Jesus wants to be known. And today, as we take the bread and the cup, can we also make a commitment to Christ? That God help us learn what it means to live into the statement, I want to know Christ. I want to know you. And whatever step you need to take in your life to know Christ in deeper ways, take a step today. We're going to be invited after my prayer to go to, the, take, uh, to go to one of the six tables to receive the bread and the cup. We're going to stay in a moment of prayer together and then we will have a song before Joe leads us in a prayer at the end of this service. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes? For God, I know in this worship space today, I know there are people who feel like they were off balance. So will you come with your power to minister to their hearts to help reset them? So God, if there's anything we can do in this space, any prayers that we as prayer leaders can pray uh, to help them, God, I pray you come with the power of your spirit to help people. Just bring some stability to people in this moment. God, for this commitment of that we want to know Christ, may this be an anthem for us, a Holy Spirit, remind us of this. Let it get into our minds, deep into our hearts. And Jesus, the whole reason we can even make a request of we want to know you, is that you want to be known. You came to know us. So thank you for being one who is present. In the name of Jesus, we thank you right now for everything you have done for our salvation and for life with you. It's through Christ we pray and the church said, amen. Please make your way to one of our tables.